This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Brown. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Jamar Tisby. He's the CEO of The Witness, a New York Times bestselling author for his book, The Color of Compromise. He's also the co-host of Pass the Mic podcast. Jamar, thank you for joining the conversation. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, first and foremost, the most important question I should ask, how is the most important member of the Tisby family doing? How is your brilliant wife, Janae, doing? <laughs> that is the most important question, and she is the most important member. Uh, she's doing well. She's doing well. We are, uh, as we record this, we had just gotten through a historic snowstorm. I have never seen this much snow in the Delta, and uh, usually it's like a eighth of an inch, you know, and then it melts by lunchtime or something but we had i don't know 
eight inches or something around there, and it was freezing cold, so it stuck. So anyway, the whole family was hunkered down for like a week as, you know, the South is just not equipped for this kind of weather. No snow plows, no salt on the streets. So we just hung out, and uh, thankfully we had power and heat, but um, that was uh, one of those experiences that is either going to bring you together or put you at your throats, probably both depending on the moment, but we're, we're, we're all hanging in there. Well, for those that aren't familiar with uh, Janae, she is a, a rock star among CBFs uh, together for hope, uh, an amazing person. I last uh, was able to exchange some time with her. Uh, Janae came in to preach at University Baptist Church. Um, I want to say it was like two or three weeks before the reality of the pandemic hit. Mm. Uh, so that, that was almost the last external uh, connection I had to anything outside of Baton Rouge um, in, in the last year. And the good news is, it, it, it started on a good note, have, have Janae uh, with us at, at UBC. So, um, That's great, yes. She's big fans of y'all. So a lot's happened in your life since we had you in the podcast in 2019. You had uh, just released your first book, and all of a sudden, Jamar Tisby's name is all over the place, and the book makes a New York Times bestseller list. Um, what happened? W walk us through the journey of becoming rightfully famous overnight. <laughs> famous infamous depends on your perspective um so the book color of compromise came out january 2019 and did well um i was very pleased i had sort of been bracing myself for all the critics all the trolls but even to this day the overwhelming response has been positive uh that the book has been challenging many people saying i never knew this before why didn't anyone teach us that kind of a thing because it's a historical survey a lot of these facts are being uncovered for people uh, for the first time and so uh, we were just plugging away i was really surprised that the book tour we had almost nothing planned in advance of the book coming out and then when it hit shelves there was just opportunity after opportunity a lot in christian colleges and universities which i've been excited about but this went on for a year and then in May of 2020, everything coalesces to make it a historic racial justice uprising. As we record this, it is the anniversary of what I would call the lynching of Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia. And um, there was also, it came to light in early summer 2020, uh, the murder of Breonna Taylor in a no-knock raid in Louisville, Kentucky. And then um, late May is, of course, that horrific video uh, that shows George Floyd being uh, slowly killed on cell phone video. And he says those haunting words, I can't breathe, words that we've heard before uh, with another black man being killed by police. And so all of this comes together. We, all f we find out about all of these things kind of at the same time and we're stuck inside, we're stuck in place during a pandemic, and on top of it, uh, we, we see all of these events happening at once, and there's millions, literally millions of people who march in the streets, who are protesting, who are demanding change and accountability, and it's in the midst of all that. People are looking to understand racism and white supremacy and how we got here and I was just as floored as anybody to know that The Color of Compromise was one of many books 
by a historic number of black authors who hit the New York Times bestseller list during that summer. You're also a, a PhD candidate. Um, how do you have time to write two brilliant books along with running an organization and hosting a podcast? And where do you get your energy and your drive? Um, I am driven by passion. <laughs> uh, the work that I'm involved with in terms of racial justice is something I really believe is critical. And so it's something I feel like I can't not do, which certainly has its downsides. Um, I have to really force myself to rest and remind myself that I don't need any excuse or any permission uh, not to work. So that's an ongoing kind of conversation I'm having with myself and, and trying to get better at. Um, writing, I write in spurts. And so uh, if I can shut things down for a period of a couple weeks, um, I can really make a lot of progress in terms of research and putting words on the page. But also a lot of this stuff has been marinating and percolating in my mind and heart for some years, especially when it comes to how to fight racism. My second book, I've been doing this work of racial justice publicly for the past decade, and I've been living it for my entire life. And so much of it was a distillation of what I've already been thinking about, going through, experiencing, things like that. Uh, but it really comes down to feeling the urgency of this moment. I really do believe we're living in the civil rights movement of our day. And I'm thinking about legacy, how I want to be remembered in this time, how I'm setting my own family up and uh, future generations for racial justice. And that is something that's hard to ignore. So as you just alluded to, you have a, a new book out, How to Fight Racism. Uh, this book invites readers to begin with Jesus as a formative way to combat racial injustice. You wrote, in times when I felt most burdened by bigotry of this world, Christ has come alongside to make the yoke easy and the burden light. Why do you point people to Jesus as a starting place? So I do want to make clear, uh, the subtitle of the book is um, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. I actually went back and forth on whether to include the word Christianity in the title because I want to make clear this book is for anyone of any faith tradition or no particular tradition at all. I believe the racial justice practices, as I call them, that are contained in the book are helpful no matter um, you know, what sort of religious persuasion you are or are not. At the same time, I decided to include it uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted truth in advertising because I was going to talk about Jesus. I was going to talk about God. And so much of my understanding of racial justice comes from scripture, comes from the Christian tradition. And number two, uh, as I say in the introduction, Christians have so often been involved in creating this system of racism and white supremacy that they must be involved in dismantling it, particularly white Christians. And so um, as I begin the book, I begin with some foundational uh, religious in this case, Christian ideas about the image of God, about God's unfolding plan 
for racial and ethnic diversity in the people of God and how diversity is not God's plan B. Diversity is God's plan A from the beginning. And I wanted that to be a foundation because the image of God says that all of us were created in God's image and likeness, and therefore we have inherent dignity, inherent worth, and inestimable value. And that is what should guide us. That is what should determine the trajectory of our interactions with one another, especially across racial, ethnic, and cultural lines. So I thought it had to be there, and I hope it formed a good foundation for the rest of what comes in the book. Well, let's take that a, a, a little deeper. Um, you know, in the book, you challenge people's assumption about their visual understanding of Jesus. Um, you know, not only do many white evangelicals grow up with a pale-faced Jesus in their churches on those awful um, expressions of art, but I wonder how you see um, their view of what Jesus looks like, giving shape to how they often, I guess we, I grew up in the tradition, uh, can theologically disconnect Jesus' teaching about racism and injustice. So the point you bring up about how we image Jesus, how we visualize Jesus, is very important because, again, people are still very stuck in um, a, a narrow conception of what racism is and looks like. Essentially, for most people, functionally, racism means using the N-word, people dressing up in white robes and hoods, burning crosses, those kinds of things are considered racism. Therefore, if I don't do those specific actions, I'm not racist, or racism isn't a problem. And you see how pernicious that is, right? Because if, if you know, those kinds of things, those kind of overtly, broadly agreed upon, agreed upon um, negative actions are all that constitutes racism, then you can see how somebody would think it's not a big deal or it's an issue of the past. But I talk about the image uh, or the way people have depicted Jesus visually, particularly Warner Salmon's painting, Head of Christ. Most listeners can probably picture it right now. It's Jesus kind of in a, in a, a profile uh, pose looking off to the side. He's got these flowing auburn locks, very narrow nose, thin lips. Uh, blue eyes, in other words, European-looking Jesus. And what does that say? Like, if we actually drill down to it, what does it say about who can identify with God? Who God looks like? Uh, what does it say when you have black churches, like the 16th Street Baptist Church, where those four precious girls were killed in an act of racial terrorism? Uh, they would have, churches like that would have images of a white Jesus. And it's so important to understand these expressions of white normativity, um, even white supremacy, can, can be subtle. It doesn't always have to be something uh, that overt. And what we need to have, every person of any race or ethnicity needs to see God identifying with people like them. That's why these visual representations are important. That's why it's important when uh, folks say Jesus is black, they're not making a statement about the amount of melanin in Jesus' skin. They're making a statement on two levels. One, uh, we have a God who identifies with us and 
I can see myself represented in this God, in this Savior. And two, we have a God who identifies with people who are oppressed and marginalized. So those are some of the reasons why I talk about, you know, what did Jesus look like? It would be easy um, to walk away from a faith like Christianity when it has been weaponized by so many over millennia. Um, I can't pastorally describe the anger and revulsion I experience as I watch people branding Jesus signs storming the Capitol in January. As a, as a person of, of color who has experienced a long history of the weaponization of the Christian faith for the justification of racism and discrimination, how have you differentiated between Jesus and those who claim to follow him? Well, first of all, Christianity has a long history on the continent of Africa. Uh, I will recommend a scholar, Vince Bantu, B-A-N-T-U, Vince Bantu, just Google his name. And he's got a couple of books on uh, sort of the African origins of Christianity. So it's important to note that as we think about, you know, all the white supremacy that has crept into Christianity in the United States, that Christianity is not a white man's religion, that it originated in uh, areas where the people look more like me than people from England or Switzerland or what have you. And so that's important to understand the history of it. It's also important to understand um, that even uh, people of African descent who were forcibly brought to the coast of uh, North America and what became the United States, oftentimes had exposure to other religions, including Christianity. So uh, most people practiced uh, tribal religions and ancestor worship, but there was also a contingent of people who practiced Islam. And there were also some Christians, uh, especially Catholics, among the uh, early people of African descent who, who were brought here. Uh, so there's a long history there that, that, that reminds us whatever corruption that we see is not something about Christianity itself. It's what uh, people have corrupted it and made it uh, along the way. Uh, the other aspects that I think of, you know, black Christians in the United States have always differentiated between uh, the God of the Bible and the God they were taught about from slaveholders and people um, committed to white supremacy. Uh, on the recent documentary uh, about the black church on PBS, Yolanda Pierce, who is the dean of Howard University uh, Divinity School, she said Christians, black Christians, uh, adapted and adopted Christianity. They made it their own. And I think that's such a critical understanding that we didn't just imbibe what the oppressor was saying about God. We weren't just accepting uh, that they could, you know, cut out whole sections of the Bible from Exodus to the prophets to other places. We said there's, there's a God of liberation here. There's a God who sees us. There's a God who knows our pain. There's a God who just like uh, God heard the cries of the Hebrews when they were enslaved in Egypt, hears our cries as we're enslaved in North America and the United States. Uh, so, so that's always been there, this adaption, this adoption, this making it our own um, that, that reminds us that there is a difference between um, the religion of the oppressor, even if they use the label Christianity, and the religion that is preached and taught and lived out by Jesus Christ himself, 
who is here. Are you interested in theological education, but not ready or able to commit to a full Master of Divinity degree? BSK now offers two certificates that focus on general ministry training. The Exploring Ministry Certificates, Levels 1 and 2, will be available beginning this fall, including course options such as Introduction to Pastoral Care, The Black Church in America, and an Invitation to Christian Theology. These certificates provide options for your area of interest. BSK certificates only require students to take three courses, and the certificates count towards the Master of Divinity. If you or someone you know is interested in learning more about these certificates, visit bsk.edu. Yeah, I guess uh, part of the undercurrent of of the question I'm I'm asking is that uh, you know for a lot of people um, who are public theologians or philosophers are are looking at um, this new iteration because it's always been there of of white Christian nationalism. Uh, that has resurged in the last couple of years and see how embedded that movement is with the local church and have a hard time separating, you know, the faith seen by those expressed and justify these things and the faith seen within uh, the Bible. And oftentimes for them, the easiest thing to do is just to disenfranchise themselves from the church, deconstruct what they have experienced and to just walk away from it. Um, you know, so for those that are are struggling to see Jesus, you know, as a part of this ravenous racism. Um, how how do people come to Jesus with fresh eyes uh, to see to see the Jesus that that you read when you when you open up the Gospels? So I think it's a function, partly a function of white supremacy, that we think the only expressions of Christianity in the United States are its most corrupt form as practiced by white people, and you named it Christian nationalism, which I think is the biggest ideological threat to the witness of the church in the US. Um, and I wanna say to so many people, you know, they might label themselves ex-evangelicals or even become atheist or agnostic. I'm just like, have you explored the Christianity of the oppressed? Have you explored the Christianity of um, Mexican immigrants who are risking life and limb for the possibility of a better future for their children? Have you explored uh, the Christianity of um, Asian Americans who, uh, whose ancestors and um, even in the present day are facing so much anti-Asian racism and persecution and fled uh, different places? Have you, of course, looked into the Christianity of black people who remain the most religious demographic in the United States. And how do you look at that and come away saying, ah, it's all, it's all just racist. It's all just white supremacist. Clearly it's not, clearly there's more to the story. So, I mean, that's the number one thing. The other thing is, you know, um, doubt is not necessarily the enemy of faith. Uh, God has room for our doubts. God has room even for our crises I went through a period in my life where I was in predominantly white spaces, which included a multiracial church um, that was still predominantly white, but, but multiracial. And this is around 2015, 2016, Black Lives Matter, presidential election, cell phone videos of people, black people getting killed, all of these things happening at once and feeling such a sense of betrayal 
from these communities that I had called home, that I had adopted, that I invested in, that my had exposed my family to. And um, by God's grace, I didn't lose my faith, but there was a period of real processing and hopefully healing from the racial trauma and the spiritual trauma that I endured. It took me a good three years to get back in the swing of things. Um, I couldn't read my Bible the same. I wasn't praying the same. And it wasn't, I just, I just didn't know how to approach God now that so much of what I had learned and the people I'd learned Christianity from had been exposed as being racist and prejudiced and bigoted and Christian nationalist. I, 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 I had to reconstruct uh, the way I approach God and view God and who I learned God from in terms of community and resources. So I think all of that, there's room for that and still having faith. There's room to be hurt. There's room to feel a sense of betrayal. There's room to grieve. Um, and in the midst of that, God never leaves us or forsakes us, even though the way we do religion, the way we do Christianity might have to undergo drastic changes. So we've been looking a bit under some of the theological underpinnings of the book, um, but let's turn a little bit to the kind of practical application aspects of it. You know, talk to us about the arc of racial justice you present in the book, awareness, relationships, and commitment. Right, right, right. So I say early in the book, the, the most frequent question I get Whenever I talk about racial justice, doesn't matter who the audience is, what the circumstances are, the most frequent I, question I get is what do we do? It's that practical question. And it's a question I love because it says a couple of things. Number one, it says that people realize racism is a problem of the present and not just an issue in the past. And that's a big step uh, for people to, to admit or grasp or understand that racism is something we need to be fighting even now and the battle didn't end in like, 1964 with the Civil Rights Act or something. The second thing it tells me is they want to be part of the solution. So you ask that question and you're tired of the status quo and you want to do something about it. You want to be part of making this world a more racially just place. So I find it a hopeful question, but I was frustrated with my answer to the question. And uh, whenever I would get that question, I would typically just give out this, you know, scattershot of, you know, try this, try that, whatever was on my mind at the moment. And I had the sense that it's all going into a black hole. Yeah, I mean, nobody's going to remember this five minutes from now, let alone put it into practice. And I decided, you know, early on, maybe five or six years ago, that maybe it was better to give folks, instead of just isolated practices, a, a framework to understand racial justice. And that's where the arc of racial justice comes in. As you mentioned, it's an acronym that stands for Awareness Relationships Commitment. And uh, what it is, is a framework to help us do a couple of things. Number one, we can interrogate our own racial justice practices. And number two, it's a framework that allows us to have a holistic approach to racial justice. And the components are relatively easy to understand. They gotta be easy if somebody like me is gonna remember it, so I hope it's helpful. But awareness, that's all the knowledge, the information, the data, the statistics that you need to understand race, racism, white supremacy, 
the the practices that go along with that, you know, watching the documentaries, reading the books, listening to podcasts like this. But you can't just have a big head. You got to have a big heart. That's where relationships come in. And it's the idea that for many of us, when the light bulb comes on about race and that we need to be involved in racial justice, oftentimes that comes through a relationship. And so it's about intentionally crossing racial and ethnic lines to get people who get to know people who are different from yourself so you can develop empathy and solidarity. It gets to the fact that all reconciliation is relational at its heart, uh, that you can't avoid it, and that in whatever we do to fight racism, we can never overlook or forget the human element in it. But that's not enough, is it? It's not all just about getting to know one another on a personal level. One definition of racism that I use is that racism is a system of oppression based on race. That's from Beverly Daniel Tatum, a, a social psychologist. And that word system is important because that means this goes beyond how one individual treats another individual. This goes to the way systems have been set up economically and politically, uh, educationally, even in the healthcare system as we're seeing. And so it says we got to change laws and policies and practices on a system-wide level if we want to see racial equity. And so we got to do something about mass incarceration. We got to do something about voter suppression. We got to do something about these health disparities and uh, the, the wealth gap and all of that stuff. So the arc of racial justice is designed to help us remember all of those, hold those intention, if you will, and make sure that we are pursuing a holistic approach to racial justice. Ultimately, we want to point people to, to read the book, but I thought we could take some of this a, a little bit deeper, one particular aspect. You know, the book, the depth of this book is immensely brilliant. And at the same time, you have made it super practical for readers. You know, for example, the portion of the book on racial identity development, you wrote mm -hmm. one of the most valuable aspects of learning the racial, ethnic, cultural identity model is that it gives a framework for different stages of racial awareness. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm so glad you brought that up. I really think that's one of the most important parts of the book. It's in the awareness section. It's called the Racial Identity Development Model. I've included one in there for black people as we develop our racial identity and one in there for white people too. So you can explore your racial identity development. And it's simply the idea, this is um, you know coming out of uh, social psychology and, and psychology. It, it's simply the idea that, that there's a process or there are different stages as you become more racially aware. And for people of any race or ethnicity, uh, stage one is essentially passivity. You sort of passively absorb all of the culture's messages about race. And in a white supremacist society, that's essentially the message, white is right, white is normal, standard, uh, everything else is other, different, inferior, substandard. And, and, and you do so without question. And then the next stage in some way, shape or form is an encounter stage, a disruptive stage. It can be positive, where someone from a different race or, or ethnic group sort of pleasantly surprises you. The stereotypes aren't true. Here's somebody who's defying them in a positive way. Most of the time, that encounter phase is negative. And so for me, um, it, 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 it's, it's several things. It's never just one thing. 
but I can remember uh, being in high school and uh, being actually this is junior high and going to the arcade and being followed around by the uh, police person on duty there, which always baffled me because we had done nothing. I mean, it was from the moment we walked in the door and there was nothing to do. It's not like a store where you can just like dump something in your pockets. It's an arcade. I don't even know what they thought we were going to do, but it was one of those things where you're constantly on under surveillance. And it was uh, a reminder that, that just because of what we look like or who we hung out with, that we could be automatically assumed to be suspect. Um, and we have lots of different encounters like that. You know, in my adult life, another encounter was with uh, politics and the 2015-2016 presidential election cycle. And I can remember walking out of church one day. This wasn't even at the uh, presidential election necessarily, but it was around that time. But I remember walking out of church one day. There was someone in the parking lot. Uh, there was a bill, uh, a, a, a referendum, I think, being proposed. And, you know, Democrats had one particular view on it. Republicans had another view. And walking out of the church parking lot on the bumper sticker, there was a bumper sticker on a car that was in support of the Republican stance on this issue. And I was walking out with a group of friends and I remember stopping and saying, you know what? At our particular church, which was intentionally multiracial, all that stuff, I said, even at our particular church, if there was somebody who had the bumper sticker in support of the Democratic side of things, somebody is liable to you know, grab you by the elbow, pull you aside and say, hey brother, let me talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, because clearly, you're missing something if you support Democrats or whatever it might be, right? But those that was a that was a moment where I remember thinking, you know what? I thought it was race alone, but it's this mixture of race and politics and sort of the whole outlook on the way the world should be that really deeply divides us. So that's a long way of getting to the fact that racial identity development allows us to name and to a certain extent categorize those experiences for the purpose of being more intentional about progressing through them so that at the most mature stage we are comfortable in our own skin we are confident to to be able to um, talk about things like racism and white supremacy but it's also not this cage stage where we have to go and tell everybody in every instance about what we know and what we've discovered we're ready we're ready when the occasion arises, but we're also able to go in and out of different racial and ethnic groups, be part of the majority, part of the minority, because we know who we are. And for Christians, we know who we are as image bearers of God, and that gives us incredible strength and incredible freedom. Robert P. Jones and the group of PRI uh, has kind of become famous for identifying, uh, you know, just eye-opening uh, research that finds that you're more likely to find a white supremacist at a church on Sunday morning than at a cafe across the road. Um, so as we think about those listening to this that are leading local congregations, as they have potentially this book in your hand, how do you imagine local church leaders using this book as a resource to help um lay the groundwork of spiritual formation on helping people maybe acknowledge and recognize their proclivity towards racism, um, let alone the spiritual formation of Christ's call for equality uh, for all people. So the question is, how, how can churches use this book? 
Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I've told you before we start recording, like I will find the most imprecise way to ask a question and you will, <laughs> you will narrow it. You'll drill it down. Yeah. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. That's great. That's great. How can churches use this book? First of all, it, it, it is my prayer that churches use this book. We talked at the top of the show about, you know, me debating whether I should use Christian in the title. And I did, and I hope it screams out to churches and faith communities in general, hey, this is a book we can use. First of all, it prioritizes the practical. I am not doing a bait and switch here, y'all. Like when I say uh, how to fight racism, there, there is a, a lot of how-to stuff in this book, so it's eminently practical. I also think it's the next stage or the next phase, right? 2020 was infuriating as we saw all these instances of racism and specifically anti-black police brutality come to the fore. And as we can see, even with my first book, The Color of Compromise, making the New York Times bestseller list, there was a clamoring of interest. There was this, this huge push to raise awareness. But now what? What comes next? And so as they say, don't, don't, don't just talk about it, be about it. So you've talked about it. You've had this, the book clubs. You've, you've watched the documentaries. You've listened to the podcast. You, you've tweeted and you've used the hashtags and all of these things. Now what? And so churches can use this, number one, get in a group. A book like this absolutely lends itself to group study. Uh, we have an online Facebook group book study right now, and it's happening in real time, but all of the resources are up there for future reference. So anything that we've done in the past is still there now. Facebook.com slash groups slash HTFR, how to fight racism, HTFR community. And add an extra week. You can probably do this in, I'd say, a five-week study. It takes two chapters a week-ish. Add an extra week for action. So what, one of the things I'm excited about with this book study group online is that uh, we're doing a, a two-hour working session called From Moment to Movement, a racial justice planning session, where I'm going to be your guide and we're going to walk through and brainstorm and plan and actually start to take the initial steps on a racial justice action plan that you create yourself, that you use for yourself, that's tailored to your environment and your situation. That's where we need to get to. The other way faith communities can use this, use the arc of racial justice to um, help you write your strategic plan for fighting racism. So your church, your congregation, what do you want to be true? How do you want to be actively in this fight for racial justice? And you can define some racial justice practices under each of those headings of awareness, relationships, commitment. So use it to help you plan even uh, your whole congregation, how, how you want to approach this as a church. And then lastly, and this is especially for black people and people of color, by the way, I think this book is still very, very helpful for, for racial and ethnic minorities. Um, I can totally understand the sentiment like, you know, I'm black, I live this every day, why do I need a book about fighting racism? I fight it just by breathing, you know, I fight it just by existing, I fight it um, every day in my workplace or my school or, or wherever it might be. Uh, I think it's going to be helpful for, for black people and people of color on two levels. One, I have a section in each chapter called Essential Understandings. And that's kind of 
a distillation of my framework for racial justice and understanding racism and white supremacy. It's gleaned from reading history and other experts. It's gleaned from a lifetime of experience. So I really think it'll help uh, sort of refine our ideas about race. The other way I think it's helpful, besides the racial justice practices, is it's going to save you some time. It's going to save you some breath. It's going to save you some energy. So the next time you know somebody asks you, well, what do we do? What do you think can be done? Here you go. Here's a book. Read it. Take two of these and call me in the morning. Uh, and 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 hopefully that is helpful to uh, black people and people of color who's just tired and exhausted by this conversation. Uh, but I would say definitely read this book in a group and allot some time to make a plan. So I want to ask you one final question. It's kind of centered on that last piece um, that you just talked about right there, which is, you know, you point people to uh, open themselves up to the possibility to listen and form relationships with people that are culturally and ethnically different than them. But at times that can feel, um, it could have the proclivity to exploitation um, or the cliche argument, you know, that a lot of white people speak out of, which is, you know, the one person of color they know on a first name basis, you know, as if that person speaks to the full spectrum of, of all black Americans. So how, how does meaningful, what does meaningful dialogue look like? And how do we put people into a place to, to posture themselves for listening and learning um, on a spiritual level? It's going to take a big reevaluation of what is comfortable to us. And I'm speaking mainly of white people for two reasons. One, just numerically, since white folks are in the majority for now, quickly moving toward a plurality where no single group is, is um, the biggest or the majority, I should say. Um, and two, it's difficult for white people because you look back through history and y'all have done a lot of work to put up barriers between yourselves and black people and other people of color from redlining and residential segregation to uh, segregation in schools to our churches still being the most segregated um, places on Sunday morning, right? So all of the energy and attention and effort that went up, uh, that went into building walls, you gotta keep that same energy trying to build bridges. So what that means is the, the very well-worn pathways of your social and pro professional and educational networks have to be disrupted. At the biggest level, you got to look at where you choose to live and where you choose to go to school or send your kids to school. Uh, these are the places where we sort of most organically connect with people who are different than ourselves. Uh, the other piece of wisdom I, 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 I can share is that when the goal of a relationship is just, I want to get this, I want to get to know this person because they're different. It can feel exploitative. It can feel like a, a relationship that's based on utility. What can I get from this person? How can they make me more racially aware? Or even more perniciously, how can I, you know, use this person to say, oh, I have black friends or I have friends of color, therefore I'm not racist, right? Um, that is going to be a temptation for anyone. It's a human temptation. How do you get beyond it? I don't know that you ever do. You constantly have to check your heart for it. But I think one way to, to help guard against it is that you get in contact with people 
not just because they're different from you racially or ethnically, but because you're all on the same mission. So wouldn't it be much more powerful to, you know, to join a school board or to attend some city council meetings or to get on a local city commission or, or something like that, where the goal is something bigger. The, the purpose of this gathering of individuals together is something that goes beyond just, oh, you're black, I'm white, let's talk. It's, there's some mission, you know, you're paying attention to the curriculum at the school, you're trying to uh, decide whether to raise, uh, you know, municipal taxes for different projects. And it's in those circumstances and situations that you get to know one another in an authentic way and where people aren't just projects, right? So, so the question is, how can you get on board with community activities and community groups where there are going to be people who are different than you, but it's not just about that. It's about something bigger and something uh, that is designed to be a goal that you work together on and it's in the process of trying to achieve that goal that you get to know one another authentically and build deep relationships. All right, I lied. I've got one more question for you. <laughs> no problem. Go for it. Who do you hope reads this book? You know, we've got the people that love Jamar Tisby. Uh, you know, I bought the book as soon as it was available. Um, but who are the folks that you, you really hope read this book? Multiple audiences. Um, certainly, I hope white Christians, especially of the evangelical persuasion, would read it. I am hopeful and prayerful that white Christians who are in or near Christian nationalist circles would be able to speak more confidently about race, racism, and racial justice. I am also hopeful and prayerful that predominantly white churches will come up with racial justice action plans, perhaps based on the arc of racial justice, to actually do stuff and to take action and to not just talk about it anymore. I am hopeful that black people and people of color read it, Christians in particular, uh, because I think we should always be refining our practice. I think we can always learn more. I think it's always helpful to hear someone else articulate their approach to racial justice, even if you're involved in the work. Um, I think this is a great book to use, uh, whether it's a predominantly white group or um, an interracial, interethnic group as well, to put your heads together, not just about studying how bad the problem of racism is, but what we can do together to, to help move further down this journey of racial justice. And then I hope um, non-Christians read it, you know, the kind of folks who might pick up a book like Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, books of that nature, would pick up this book because one of the things that we have to do in order to really wrap our heads and our hands around this issue of racism and white supremacy is understand it from a religious perspective and particularly a Christian perspective as um, the most widely practiced religion in the United States. So understanding that we really can't make uh, the kind of progress we want on racial justice unless we understand the role of religion in terms of racism and what we need to do about it. For those that want to stay connected with Jamar, check out his work at thewitnessinc.com. Follow him on social media. 
Of course, download his podcast, Pass the Mic, which is way, way better than this podcast. Uh, go out and purchase How to Fight Racism wherever books are sold. Uh, Jamar, I'm humbled that you're willing to come on to the podcast again. And, and thank you for your continued innovative and prophetic leadership and helping the world become a more equitable and just place for all of God's children. Great conversation. I'd love to hop back anytime. Thank you. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAfee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.